The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie First, I want to listen to some of this study that the AA compiled that alleges that two in every five smokers lie on their life insurance applications. They say the discrepancy is down to misrepresentations from smokers about their habits. Sounds to me like some smokers might be in denial. Conor Faulkner of the AA was on Newstalk Lunchtime, a very good programme today, presented by Andrea Gilligan. Here's some of what he had to say. You're entering into a legal contract with an insurance company and you are being asked about material facts. Um, And lying about those facts clearly means that the insurance company is going to be within their rights not to hold up their side of the bargain. Actuaries are unemotional creatures. They're calculating the likelihood of you losing your life during the period of the term. Um, And yeah, they will charge smokers almost double what they charge a non-smoker. Yeah, and, you know, for good reason. You smoke, which means that you're going to probably need more medical treatment. You might indeed die sooner because that's what smoking does to you, even though you could theoretically be in denial. So is it down to the fact that people are just hiding their smoking habits from insurance companies to get a cheaper rate? Owen McGee is a financial consultant. He is the founder of Prosperous Financial Planning. He's with me in studio. Are you a smoker, Owen? I don't smoke. No, used to. Smoked about... Gave up about 15, 16, 17... I hope my kids aren't listening to this, but about 15, 16, 17 years ago I gave up. Um, It's interesting because you pointed out just there you get charged more. Of course you do. Actually, New Ireland did a study on this where they found that one in... You have a one in an eight and a half chance of dying as a non-smoker before the age of 65. And you have a one in four chance of dying as a smoker before the age of 65. So you have more than... You have about twice the likelihood that you're going to die before the age of 65 if you smoke compared to if you don't smoke. Uh, The AA did a very good thing to work out how people are lying on the farms. And and it's actually quite simple when you dig down into how they did it. Yeah, well, that, basically what they said is the CSO figure suggests that 19% of the population smokes um, and that the AA experience is that 12% of the people who apply for cover through them smoke. Now, I, I think even Connor suggested this as well. Is the AA customer actually representative of the entire population? I don't think it is, to be fair. Like, really, the entire population is everyone from whatever, under the age of 20, over the age of 60. Does everyone under the age of 20 and over the age of 60 have a life policy? No. So it's it's just representative of their customers. That's the first thing I'd say. The other thing is, if we make a jump, and I don't want to get too far to one side, but if we make a jump here to pensions, you actually live longer if you have a pension. Now, that's not because... Uh, How how do you live longer if you have a pension? It's not that it's a magic medicine pill or anything. It's the fact that people who think about taking out pensions are actually thinking about other things like their health and their well-being and long-term as opposed to... So if you take pension people who have pensions as a group of people and compared to the people who don't have pensions, it can tell you something about... It's nothing to do with the pension. Don't get me wrong. It's nothing to do with pension. Now, if you take that same logic and apply it to life cover, can you assume that mortgages aside, and even actually if you think about it, if you take out a mortgage, you need life cover. So the majority of people in this country who have life cover have it as a result of having a mortgage and the need to have life cover attached to a mortgage. So is it the case that it's a certain age cohort that we're primarily talking about here? Those who be going for life cover 
they're not the people in their 18, 19 year bracket. They're probably in their mid to late 20s. They're taking out loans for the first time. They're starting to think to the future for the first time. And as a consequence, then the dirty habit that they're trying to give up or didn't care about is coming back to bite them in, in the lungs, if not the arse. Yes, and I think that kind of hits the nail on the head back to the other the other comment that I made a second ago. It's representative of the entire population versus representative of the people who take out life cover with the AA. And you asked me at the start, do I smoke? Yeah, I smoke. I smoked when I was a kid. But do you, ha- do you have to admit that now? Going no, forward? no. If, and that's a really, that's a really valid point. If you haven't, if you were a smoker when you took out the application and you told the life company at the time, I am a smoker. And they said, right. And they gave you smoker rates and they charged you more because you were a smoker and quite rightly so. If you then subsequently become a non-smoker, you can do one of two things. You can go back to your, if you've off them for 12 months and you're consistently off them for 12 months, you can go back to your life company and say, I'm now a non-smoker and they can assess it and they, it's at their discretion but they can actually make you a non, give you non-smoker rates from there on the, in. The smoker psyche is a strange one um, because there are casual smokers and people who convince themselves I, I don't really smoke mm. but yet they'll go out maybe the weekend and have two or three cigarettes but they've convinced themselves they're not smokers. They are though and um, they should be declaring that on the form. They should be and what they should be declaring is, is that I'm a casual smoker and let they, the life company decide. I would, when a client's sitting in my office and we're filling out an application form I'd work on the basis and you have to bear with me to the end of this point right? I would work on the basis that when we're filling out the application form you have to assume that the life company does not want to pay out the claim ever, right? So let's give them all the information, let them decide what they want to do and then we're happy that they they have all the knowledge yeah, but that sure, they need. If you're in denial yourself about whether you're a smoker... Tell them. And you see, I think that's really where the point is. If you have, if you've got a company where you're dealing with them online and you're filling out a form online, you're going, ah, it's two or three cigarettes at the weekend. What that's not this? really it- a smoker. As opposed to sitting in my office and I go, do you smoke? No. Really? Are you sure you yeah, don't smoke? Yeah. And the other side, of course, again, from doctors to insurance companies, we all lie. How much do you drink a week? Actually, might have four or five pints when the reality is you're probably having a lot more than four <laughs> I remember or five 17, pints. 17, 18 years ago when 17, I started. I thought you were going to say 17 or 18 <laughs> pints. I was like, good man. 17, 18 years ago when I started in this industry and I remember an underwriter and I asked him that very question. Surely you couldn't believe that they only drink four or five pints a week and now we double it. Now I don't know if they do or not, right? But we just, and I think that's generally a good rule of thumb. If you double the figure, then you know how much people a yeah. person is drinking. Let me finish the last point Go because on. I'll be shot by the life companies and I'm not here to defend them. In general, my experience has been, although I tell clients to fill out the application form as if you are trying to fight a claim here. When we do get to claim stages, particularly true, now I can only speak for the broker market, but my experience with claims has been very, very good because I find that they engage immediately, they look for ways to pay out. Um, If you didn't tell them you were a smoker, let's be, and Connor said it, Connor Faulkner said it in the clip there a minute ago, it's at their discretion whether they pay out or not. What I generally find is, is they say, let's say if you were a smoker, your premium should have been 100 euros a month, but you said you were a non-smoker and you paid 70 euros a month for the same cover. Usually what they will do, again, it's at their discretion, but usually what they will do is they'll say, how much cover would 70 euros a month have bought you as a smoker? Yeah. And they pay out that amount. That's usually, so they will pull it down. Now, if you go to the other extreme, say you don't disclose that you have a terminal illness and you complete the application form and you die of that terminal illness in the next six months, I can't see a they live company okay, pay now, out. I, we, we were discussing this at length in the office earlier and uh, what came to my mind, there was an episode of The Good Wife where this exact thing happened where somebody was found to be a smoker. Now, US jurisdiction, completely different and a made-up story. But mm. in that case, the insurance company fought vociferously not to pay out the money and... 
the law was almost on their side because, you know, you lied on the form. Now, I mean, could an insurance company, in theory, you're saying it doesn't happen, but in theory, if you lied about being a smoker and you died from a smoking-related illness, could they, in theory, not pay out? Let's me, let me put my word I used a minute ago, underlined and bolded. It's at their discretion. Of course, they, do, they don't have to pay out. You've lied to them. You haven't disclosed a material fact to them. You need to be very clear. As I said, if you think you shouldn't, if you're wondering whether you should put it into the application form or not, put it into the application form. Let them decide whether you should or not. 53106 for a text message. Have you done this? Is this something that you've done in the past? You've lied on the form or you've told an untruth in the hope that you get away with it. One listener says here, Owen McGee, by the way, is my guest financial consultant. Uh, I lied on my form. How can an insurance company ever prove that I smoke? I can simply say, took it up after I filled in the form. I hope the listener didn't put his name on it. They didn't. No, no, no. <laughs> it's an anonymous no, text. You'd be surprised. You'd be shocked, actually. You go in with a chest infection to your GP and you say he says you smoked ah I have my two or three at the weekend and he writes it down and you've forgotten about it it's on your file or unfortunately you might die of lung cancer and the when when they look at your lungs after you've died it's evident that you're a smoker the life companies will check these things out they they, they have to you know why they have to because they have to be fair to all the other pre- people who are paying premiums because no different than car insurance the more claims that are made the higher the premiums go up as claim statistics go down the less the premiums there, are. There's, so, a, there's a suggestion in, in some of the reading I did in this earlier that there's actually a test they could do. If you are sent, if, for mm. example, you say you're not a smoker mm. and they're not sure about it and they send you for a medical and the medical is normally can be done by your own GP or in some circumstances, mm. if it's life insurance, it's done. I remember it happened to me years ago to go and have a, yeah. a GP uh, give me the once over in the insurance company. And they can do a test. Yeah, constantine test. What so basically it? what they do is, is they just take a swab of the inside of your mouth. It's very non-invasive. Take a swab of the inside of your mouth. I'm fairly sure it's 30 days. So it can tell if you've smoked in the last 30 days. That's just a very quick swab. Done. Dusted. You and if there's any, any nicotine or anything in your system to suggest that you've been smoking in the last 30 days, they will go on the basis of that test. It's very conclusive. Um, it's a very easy way for the life company to decide, yes, you are and you know you're not. No, you're not. Now, the reality is though 66% of people who apply for cover or somewhere maybe not 66 two thirds of people who apply for cover never end up going for a medical. They get accepted immediately at yeah. standard rates based on what's on the application form. But I, I just I couldn't stress enough the importance of actually putting down but yeah, what, what else do they lie about though? A couple of things form? what would you expect? You'd expect people to lie about their weight yeah. We've touched on already. Oh we're, Al- we're going to complete alcohol. denial about how yeah. much we weigh. Alcohol habits um, Mental health is a big one People tend to shy away to talk about mental health on an application form. I'd argue again, and of course you're going to say to me, you would say that on, wouldn't you? But I would argue that when you're sitting face to face with somebody as opposed to doing this online yourself, you will be more upfront about some of the mental health issues that you may have had in the past. It's a very interesting area and it's, it's, it's an area where actually suicide is covered on life policies. It's not covered in the first 12 months. But it is covered. Is it? Yes. I was always of the opinion. There was a test case back in in the 60s or 70s. And basically what happened was there was an individual who commits suicide seven years after taking a plan out. And the life company tried not to pay out. And the family brought it to court. And basically the court said, the, the family managed to prove, you know what? No more than I know if I'm going to have cancer in seven years' time. Did he know he was Did he know he was... And and, and therefore they do allow... You either get no cover whatsoever or you are covered automatically okay. after and, 12 and months. Obviously, if anyone is listening who's in a situation where yes. they're a little concerned, they need to talk about it rather than and worry about what a life insurance company is going to do. Um, I didn't mention that I've been on antidepressants for a two-year period a few years ago before I took out the life policy for a mortgage. Does this matter? And could they find out from my medical records? So something that happened in the past, thankfully this individual has gotten over it, but it's sitting on the file. If anything ever happened, would it invalidate the policy? 
I'm going to be honest with you, if that person walked into my office tomorrow morning, the first thing I would do is I would put a, a letter together and inform the life company, get it in writing that you have informed them of it. I'm not I'm not in a position to say what will actually happen in that case. But what I would imagine happen is, is the life company will take all the facts into account and at least you know where you are. Because if you they don't know... They could hike the price. They could hike the price. It, it depends. It depends on the severity of the episode that that person had. And that's it's an unfortunate episode. And if it was a once-off, if it was if it was a life event that created this, life companies are quite understanding of these things. But what I would say to you is, is if you don't bring that to the attention of the life company now you are paying a premium that could ultimately be pointless. You're wasting your money on a month-to-month basis. Yeah, a very good question. And uh, this was, again, something that came up in the office earlier. If you lie on your form about being a smoker and then you die in a car crash, can they adopt the same policy of not of not paying out the full amount? Because, you know, unless you, you were reaching for your fags and caused the car crash, uh, smoking had nothing to do with your death. If it comes up in the application that when it comes up in their review of your file that you were a smoker, again, you've not disclosed a material fact. In re- so again, we're coming back to this word of discretion. It's at their discretion. If they find out about it, it's at their discretion whether they pay out or not. I would say, in my experience, life companies tend to be fair about these things and they try to pay out what they believe is fair. Mm. But again, it just I'm, I'm sorry to keep coming back. It's like a politician sitting there. But no, but it you, comes you, back you, as discretion. Don't bloody lie on the form in the Absolutely. first place. It's a guilty secret. Yeah, but if, if you have lied, let's go back to the life company now and tell them about yeah. it. Um, if you have what's called a precondition, even though you didn't know about it, are you covered with that? Says another listener. No, if you didn't know about it, you didn't know about it. Like when you go to fill out the application form, if there was nothing to suggest that you had that and then six months later you discover, like there was a case, I remember looking at some stats a, a couple of years ago in one of these presentations from one of the underwriters and they, they gave us some examples of cases where a guy starts his policy on the first of the month and the seventh of the month he had a bit of a cough, went to his GP and by the end of the month he had discovered he had cancer. He obviously had that cancer for six months, but, but he, he knew, didn't, nothing, about knew it. No, yeah. no, nothing about it. So therefore, that's fine. Most people take out life cover because they get a house, uh, they get a mortgage. Mm. And um, people are in difficult situations with negative equity and so on. And they were trying to maybe save a few bobs so they might have said that. The, the nightmare scenario in this, and you talk about discretion a lot, is that maybe, um, yeah, the life, the life company will pay out, but you only get 70% or 60% yeah. of what's there. And that still doesn't cover the house and leaving yeah. the person behind yeah. without their partner yes. or, or without their, their source of income and, and still don't have the house. And they still have 30% of the mortgage left over or whatever. If we take 70%, you still have 30% of the mortgage left over. In fact, you'll end up with more than that on the, with the smoker because if you look back to the figures that New Ireland discovered, eight times versus four times, like one in four people will die of a smoking relate. So therefore, the premium is going to be more than double it's going to it's going to have to reflect the statistics okay. so you'll be left with a bigger hole on your mortgage and you'll be loss of that income that partner's income is now gone so it is just it's imperative that okay. you actually get this so information so the bottom line is you can continue lying for the rest of your life to your mother about whether you're a smoker or not yep. Don't lie to your insurance company. Don't lie to your insurance company. If you have already, come clean now. Ideally, and again, you would say this, get the advice of an independent person first. Go into their office, tell them what's happened and push it through. Don't leave it. Make sure that life company gets it in writing off you at some stage. Do you know something? It's one of the grimmer topics you can talk about, life insurance. Ah, It's a great way to start the show, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Owen McGee, financial (laughs) consultant, founder of Prosperous Financial Planning. Thank you very much. We go from smokers to clampers. That's next. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie
Yeah, lots of people have uh, opinions on that smoking story. 53106, I'll uh, give you some of those text messages uh, a little bit later on. But it is being reported that private clampers are still being able to charge up to €300 euro to release vehicles, despite the fact that laws limiting fees have been in place since last May. Some Fine Gael backbenchers have been putting pressure on the Transport Minister Shane Ross to get this sorted. Uh, but you'd like to think that it would have been sorted without pressure being put on the Minister. Kieran Lynch is a Labour Party politician. He is former TD and a former chair of the Doyle Transport Committee. Kieran Lynch, uh, good evening to you. Good evening, Jonathan. Uh, you sat on this committee and you discussed this how long ago? In March 2012, the Transport Committee that I was then chairing, uh, Jonathan, published our report. It was an extensive examination of the clamping industry. We invited a, a, a whole range of stakeholders before the committee, local authorities, uh, the clamping industry companies themselves, and other agencies actually out there, uh, such as retail companies and, and so forth. The net outcome of that was that the report was was uh, published. It had 38 specific recommendations actually in it that should be carried out in legislation, recommendations that would provide for a fair and consistent approach uh, to the industry, regardless of whether the clamping was carried out in either private or public properties. Okay, all very logical. I remember this at the time. I think we discussed it on lunchtime when I was talking to you. We didn't, we didn't eat. Yeah, now, um, this was signed into law in May of last year, so it's on the books for 12 months, yet people are still paying 300 not the 100 as set out in the legislation. How is that working, or not working, as the case may be? Well, you see, it's a completely unacceptable situation, given that it's no over... Uh, since 2012 to 2006, it's over four years ago uh, since these recommendations were brought forward. Uh, the bill has been passed, as I understand it. It's been signed off by the President, but we're not actually seeing the application of the bill in people's day-to-day lives. Uh, in some ways, people may be not surprised by this and that this is becoming very much a do-little doyle, uh, where a lot of talking is taking place with very, very little action. And the reality here is that the solutions have been identified, they are available, but they simply have not been applied and put into practice. Yeah, but well, hang on, why? why? Now, this was passed by the Doyle of which you were a member it's been signed by the President is it down to a simple enforcement order being signed or a commencement order being signed by the Minister who in this case is Shane Ross Well from what I understand it there seems to be some uh, absence of activity between the Minister Ross's department and that of the National Transport Authority and in recent reports that I've looked at from the National Transport Authority they seem to say that this is a very complex area and a lot of work needs to be done the work has been done and the work has been done back as far as March 2012 I mean, one, for instance one of the uh, recommendations in that report which I think is a, an, excellent, an excellent recommendation one does, does have to realise that there has to be sanctions in place to ensure that people uh, behave themselves when parking and driving we do have some penalties in place if people uh, park illegally in disabled parking spots or they create a hindrance to emergency vehicles getting down roads and so forth. But what is required is that there is a consistent approach in regard to how clampers operate, whether they're operating for private uh, car parks or whether they're operating on behalf of local authorities. And that ceilings have to be put in place with regard to what the maximum uh, release fee will actually be. And one of the recommendations, for instance, that was in that report is that when somebody is clamped, if uh, the if you find yourself clamped and you're in the clamping company, the first thing that should not happen is that they shouldn't be using premium uh, call lines where you're actually paying a second penalty that you're paying additional money for the telephone call you're making. And secondly, you're left there stranded for hours, sometimes in the middle of the night waiting for the release van to come out. The recommendation was very simple in that report, was that the clamping company should have a specific designated period of time to which they would actually respond to that telephone call. And if they weren't able to do so within that time frame, that the car would be 
released this yeah. week. Okay, well, hang on, hang on now. That's very little to do with what Shane Ross is signing. Uh, the clamping companies, if I remember rightly, were all mad for this idea that they wanted the regulation to be brought in so that the rogue operators that were out there would be brought to check. Could they not have done all of this voluntarily? And, and yeah. have they done it voluntarily? Well, you, there's two points you touch upon there, and that is a very peculiar aspect of this, in that what we have here is a situation where uh, businesses who are compliant in the industry, who are paying their taxes, who are employing people uh, with decent wages, actually want to see the industry regulated, but the government are actually failing to put in the regulatory framework actually around them. That's the first difficulty that we actually have. Uh, the second one, then, is that the you can't apply what's called a code of practice. This needs to be based upon legislation. So when we have rogue clampers, or we have companies operating in a predatory manner, and that clamping should be there as a deterrent. The car parks themselves should be making money. The clamping should not be the profit element of it. But if we have rogue behaviour, rogue clampers, and uh, companies operating in a predatory manner, that the, the penalty for that is enshrined in legislation and not in the code of conduct. Okay. We've seen in the past, with regard to a different report that was involved in, when you put soft-touch regulation actually out there, as was the case with the banking industry, people see it as a soft touch All right. they don't respond well, to it. You see, if I was the National Transportation Authority, this is a win-win because, uh, you know, there's a bit of work involved in this, but uh, it would give them good press. If they tackled the clampers and held them to account, it would mean that the NTA would go up in people's estimations. Why is there a reluctance or is there a reluctance to act as regulator uh, by the NTA? I mean, are, are, are their hands tied by ministerial inaction? I can't answer that for the NTMA. Or the NTA, maybe they should be on the show explaining that. Like, I mean, if we had the NTMA involved and there was money, you'd be sure that they'd be bringing it in as quick as they could. Yes, I, I'm reverting to another report there, John, my apologies. <laughs> but, if, if it's, but if it's the NTA uh, and, the, and there is difficulty there, well, then they should be held to account and, and brought to explain as to why they're not actually progressing this. Well, ultimately, the book stops at the minister's desk. And the legislation has been passed. A, a series of measures have been identified that create a fairer and more uh, and a better operating system for motorists. A one that is consistent that we would like to see a maximum charge be put in place. One that does cover the cost of having the car released, but not one that a company is making exorbitant profits actually on. All the, all the solutions have been identified. What is absent here is the actual action to actually put those solutions in place. And if it's a case that the NTA are actually dragging their heels in it, well then the minister needs to intervene and ensure that these regulations are in place as soon as the, the doyle resumes. Okay. It's gone well past the period of a thinking about this and seeing this as a complex issue. As I have said, the recommendations have been identified. What is now required is action. Uh, just to finish up, Kieran, uh, you're still a politician. You'll run for election again at some stage by the sounds of it. When you say this is a do-nothing doyle, are, are you surprised by that? Because we knew on the day of the election that this was going to happen, that we were going to see Fianna Gael that were beholden to Fianna Fáil. We were going to inevitably have independents who are ministers who would find it difficult to... to, to, to swallow a lot of what they had to do if they got into government. I mean, we, we knew this was coming. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised. Well, like any part of person that has ever stood for election, uh, one has to take the judgment of the electorate on election day, and I accept that. Uh, and the, the outcome of that was that Labour Party uh, suffered a very, very significant setback at the last general election. However, the purpose of standing for election is to be given the privilege to serve in your national parliament and to take on the responsibilities and duties that come with this. But we now seem to have a situation where people believe that getting elected to the Doyle is a, is the is a complete or is the accomplishment in itself, 
and that the only job that they have to do there is to sit on the ditch and start hurling abuse at whoever happens to be in power on the day. We're in a very, very peculiar situation now, That and the polls would even seem to reflect this, that it's more profitable to be doing nothing other than talking than to, than to be doing something. And as a result, what we have seen in this soil is that there has been no progressive uh, progression of legislation. Mm. Very little is actually happening in yeah. terms of laws actually being passed. A lot of uh, a lot of uh, debate is taking place in the chamber uh, more times than often, going around in circles, not leading to any action. Okay, well, come here. <laughs> you couldn't describe the last oil in the same thing. A lot of talk and not know, it, it, action. On, on the contrary, on the contrary, Jonathan, the, the last oil, when it came together in 2011, uh, was dealing with the biggest financial crisis. All right, all right. I know, all right. No, but that has to be said, Jonathan. I mean, we, we, you can't be kind of cynical about things because what adds to the further degree of cynicism is if you're not actually dealing with the, with, with the factual. I've the factual ne- is never is, been is accused that, of being cynical in all my 20 years as on the radio. I mean, sure. The previous doyle passed passed a record okay. amount of, of legislation, carried out real reforms, and in fact, the Dacklampton report that I chaired in 2012 was actually an outcome of one of those reforms. Okay. And, and to be well, fair, it, it, it is there and the Minister hasn't signed it and that's why people are still being clamped uh, for 300 quid to get it released. Kieran Lynch of the Labour Party and former chair of that committee that drew up that report. Thank you very much for joining us on the line. Uh, this is The Right Hook. Stay with us. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Jonathan Healy on the right hook this evening. Ian O'Doherty, a columnist with the Irish Independent, is with me. Ian, good evening to you. Good evening, Jonathan. How are you? We are going to talk about, without a shadow of a doubt, the most controversial politician that the United States has ever produced, and it's produced a few doozies over the years. Well, you know, it has form. Um, There's no doubt (laughs) about that. You see, the thing is, it has great form of producing nutters who never get anywhere. Yes. Uh, now we have a situation where, I mean, I'm just reading a piece of today's Independent and it says um, <clears throat> the US Secret Service has spoken to Donald Trump and told him to tone down his rhetoric. Now, this is a man who's running for president. He has it's, a Secret Service detail. He has a Secret Service <laughs> detail anyway. And they, the, the thing is, I've become as somebody who's a, who was a mild Trump supporter um, and now somebody who's becoming increasingly horrified and bemused by what's going well, on. Well, let's listen to the offending comments. This is what he said about Hillary Clinton. Again, and significant to point out, this is Donald Trump not reading the autocue, straying off the script, and when he strays off the script, boy, does he stray into dangerous territory. Hillary wants to abolish, essentially abolish, the Second Amendment. By the way, and if she gets to pick... If she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know, but... But I'll tell you what, that will be a horrible day. Now, he says, uh, the media are out to get me. It's misinterpreted. They are. Well, they are out to get me. And we'll come back to that. Okay. But do you think that the comments are open to misinterpretation? Or did he actually imply there that Second Amendment advocates, people with guns, might somehow take out Hillary Clinton? No. Only a mad person or a Democrat or somebody who works in the Irish media you know, um, who can't stand Trump would willfully misinterpret something. It's a bad joke. 
It's a clumsy joke. And the problem with Trump is that if you're explaining, you're losing. And he spent the last month basically having people explain well, him. Would he it's, not a bit like, it's a bit like the baby thing. Jeremy said, oh, get the baby out of the room. And it looks yeah. it looks really horrible in print. And then you actually see him saying it and he's, he's joking. But, but would, would he not have been better served or his spokespeople been better served saying he tried to make a joke? It didn't work. And for that... You know, we apologise, but my central point is X. They didn't apologise. They didn't admit, say it was a joke. Uh, they just said uh, the media were out to get them and misinterpreted it. They actually bring levels of paranoia that even Hillary Clinton would now be proud of when it comes to sort of dealings with the media, you know. Um, but the thing about the... the, the um, I didn't... I initially did not understand what the fuss was about with the Second Amendment thing. The NRA are one of the largest power blocks in America. He was referring to basically the, the voting power that these people have. And he was right as well. This is something we tend not to pay that much attention over here is that it looks like there'll probably be three Supreme Court replacements in the lifetime of the next presidency. And so for the first time since the foundation of the uh, of America, they're looking at there is a potential that basically the Second Amendment could be under serious threat. So regardless of whether you like guns or not, he had a very, very good point to make that basically, you know, don't tread on them. They all the old American sort of, you know, live free kind of cliches. But for a guy who used to marking himself as this incredible communicator. I mean, he might as well have Charlie Sheen in advising him at the moment. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, basically, if he turned around and said, actually, that Charlie Sheen has been a secret director of communications, it would actually make an awful lot more sense. Yeah, and, and the thing is, uh, the point I made about the autocue is the Republicans would love this guy to stay on message yeah. because it would make their job of trying to get him elected an awful lot easier. Uh, and the Democrats love when he strays off because he keeps saying stupid things. He keeps saying stupid We see, the thing is, it's funny, I've written a piece for, about this for tomorrow and I'm basically saying that if you were the campaign manager of either Hillary or Trump, what you'd be saying to your candidate now is, shut up. Mm. Shut up. You can't even kiss babies because Trump will end up offending somebody even if he tries to do that. But basically, this is an election that somebody is going to lose, not an election that somebody is going to win. Yes, but you shouldn't want a president who has to be told to shut up. In an ideal world, Jonathan, perhaps you might think, actually, we would like to think that, and you see, he's kind of the chief executive of America. You know, he's bringing this business whole thing to the States and, you know, being a, being the president is like being the chief executive. Um, the problem is you can't have the dumbest person on the team being the boss. And that's one of the impressions they're really getting now when you look at Trump. And you see, the only reason why I kind of had been so supportive of Trump is that the people he enrages are the people who should be enraged. And so I kind of, you know, I do, I like that and I admire that about him. And I love the way, I mean, I, I love the fury that you see in people's voices, even in Ireland, like, oh, Trump is worse than Hitler. You know, you know I don't like The Apprentice either, but I mean, I'm not going to compare it to the Holocaust. You know, and it's, we've lost complete proportion on any sense of perspective yeah, no, when no, we're no, talking no, about okay, Trump. We may but have, we may exploit have, that. That's, yeah, the, that's the frustrating well, thing. Well, we, he may, we may overreact when we hear what he's saying, but we overreact for a reason. Because if this guy actually got into power, God knows what we'd be dealing with. And we would have to deal with it on this little island. Three times he asked, why don't we use our nuclear weapons? There's a reason, Donald, and it should be obvious. And if it's not, then you definitely aren't fit for office. Well, the thing is, I certainly, I mean, I've always said that, you know, actions speak louder than words. Trump's words have, for me, made him probably unsuitable to be president. Clinton's actions have repeatedly made her unsuitable for that job. You see, this is the thing. We now have a situation where the greatest country in the world has the two worst candidates imaginable. And it's a terrible tragedy for them. It's um, it's also incredibly depressing. And the only thing, and I've been saying it to my readers and stuff like that, is like, all we can do now is just strap ourselves in for the next 100 days. And just, it's going to be an incredibly entertaining uh, journey because we might as well just laugh the laugh of the damned at this stage. But I mean, I still think you can you can be appalled by Trump, but still understand how he has been willfully misinterpreted, wildly, wildly misinterpreted and mischaracterised by the media. And the interesting thing is that I'm not sure if I agree because the stuff he is coming out with 
is nonsense. And he, he, he is saying things that are trying to appeal to the people in front of him. Like he, he is getting sucked into the crowd, appealing to the woman at the back who's going, woohoo, yeah, go Donald, forgetting that people are watching his every move because he is running for election. I thought, I, in, my, in my terrible naivety, I assumed that basically when he was just beating up all the other Republican candidates, I mean, every debate he just basically took their lunch money off them. So yeah. I thought basically, right, names. as soon as we get past this, he'll actually might, maybe now might become a bit more sort of presidential. And I remember saying with all the sort of, you know, the lofty arrogance of everybody who was a columnist, like, trust me, Soon as he gets the gig, he's got, and then like within a day, he just managed to enrage three different countries and annoy a hundred million people as well. Um, and but here's what really terrifies me: isn't Trump? It's the fact that Trump isn't the worst alternative that's there. But at the same time, are you saying now, Ian O'Doherty, in a horrible scenario, you don't have a vote that you'd vote for Hillary instead of Donald? No. I'd actually, I'd go, if it was up to me, I'd go, I mean, I'd actually pretty waste it and go Gary Johnson and the Libertarians. You see, this is the... But that's pointless because one of them is going to become president. You'd have voted for someone who's not. Well, this is for the first time ever, the Libertarians actually have a chance of getting into the presidential debate. If they can get the 15% in the polls, there was actually a time for basically, if ever there was a third party was going to basically split some differences, it's this election because nobody wants to vote for the people that they're going to end up voting for. I mean, it's, and I've been talking to Americans with this and they've never seen anything like this. Yeah, but a third candidate in America tends to skew the entire thing. Look, Ross Perot cost Dukakis the election. Oh, listen, I mean, I mean, there's been a couple of examples. I mean, Gore lost out as well because of that. But I mean, the, no, the, you see, the thing about it is, is that we now actually have ourselves and this is the, we're in the truly remarkable looking glass where actually the libertarians are the most sensible party. Uh, coming out with things because normally they're the party of cranks and of very cranky they, they, people. They, they've got a lot of strange policies as well, both on left and right. They're, yeah. they're, they're well, I mean, unusual. It's, it's, it's the only party I ever joined, actually, funny enough. Um, <laughs> I was an associate member of the Libertarian Party. And then I actually decided that it's very un libertarian to join anything, so I immediately renounced. <laughs> you, um, you were a contradiction to yourself. But, yeah. yeah. Um, no, but the, the thing is, even if you look at people like Johnson talking, right, I mean, he's talking about, right, um, they are the only party that don't care about legalising weed, for example. Everybody goes, Libertarians, oh, they're, they're just all stoners. They don't care about it. They're actually making serious things. They don't want to invade anybody. They're more reasonable and far more rational than Trump is and they're not as cynical and self-serving as Clinton is. But the thing about this is that it is the perennial question, do you just waste your vote? Yeah. But I mean, it's one of those, there will be people going in and they will be weeping when they come out of the voting booth on yeah. this The one. bottom line here is, in your opinion and my opinion as well, I think for once, Ian, we're completely in agreement on okay, this. Okay, I'm worried now. <laughs> Donald Trump ain't going to win because one in five Republicans now say he should withdraw yeah. and if that's happening and you're hearing interviews with uh, the Corn Belt and these guys who are diehard Republicans who've never voted for a Democrat and never will saying I'm also not going to vote for Trump in the same way that you're yeah. talking about this guy is toast and Hillary's going to win Well I, I would have voted for Biden over Trump if Biden had got it I would have happily voted for Biden actually um, but the thing is it's uh, the reason why Trump will what about lose Bernie? What about Bernie? Would you have voted for Bernie? Well, you know, Bernie look, would really get under your skin, I suspect. He seems like a very nice guy, but I don't know. You know, call me uh, a right-wing money-grabbing booger, but I mean, I think a ninety percent tax rate isn't something I could actually get behind, and that was something that Bernie was recommending. You know, uh, no. The, the thing about it is, this is one of those elections. Whether we like it or not, American politics has a direct impact on us, right? And it's not just sort of you know the chattering class or whatever it has a real direct impact. The thing I would say to anybody who's listening to this: just sit back and laugh. Because this is so far out of our hands now. We're dealing with an election and it's being campaigned by mad people who are being organised by mad people. Like the, the, the campaign staff on both sides. Hillary Clinton the other night had the father of the Orlando shooter. Right, the guy who killed 49 people in the Pulse nightclub. His father, who by the way is an open supporter of the Taliban, was sitting behind Clinton at her speech in Florida. 
Now, as I said, that'd be like basically Tim McVeigh's father, you know, the Oklahoma yeah. bomber. That would have been like Donald Trump getting Timothy McVeigh's father for an election rally in Oklahoma. <sighs> so you're, you're basically, you're into a situation where it's, it's Mondo Bizarro. Yeah. And it's either terrifying or hilarious. Well, and it's it's not funny for the people of America who have to deal with this. And uh, I suppose it, the only thing is, if Trump wins, we'll all be mortified when he comes over because we'd have to retract everything we said. About oh, we'll say, but uh, I have a few journalists already, you know, in my little black book, have been saying that he's worse than Hitler and that he's going to make, you know, he's going to make America like Nazi Germany. I would love for that. Think about it is, I thought up until a couple of weeks ago that he might sneak it. I don't think there's any yeah. chance now. Which gives us pause for thought, and uh, we can breathe out a little bit on that. Ian O'Doherty, columnist with the Irish Independent and an advocate of free speech. Thank you very Thank much you for very joining us. Uh, Timmy Dooley, the uh, Fianna Fáil TD is on the line. Timmy Dooley, good evening to you. Good evening, Jonathan. Uh, we've had an Irish win at last in the boxing. Stephen Donnelly uh, has got after getting through to the quarter-final in the last few minutes. Nice that we have something good and positive to talk about. Ah, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, unfortunately, attention has been diverted uh, from the Olympics over the last number of days, and that must be a huge distraction particularly to the athletes that have trained so hard and have put so much time in over the last number of years in their preparation but uh, it's great to see that uh, they're still competing and obviously brushing uh, other matters to the one side for the time being. Uh, well, let's talk about the other matters because uh, much and all as you'd like to put them to one side, the, the ticket selling scandal is, is going to go on. Uh, Kevin James Mallon, he's an Irishman and a Brazilian, Barbara Canieri, they've been arrested in Rio after the discovery of ticket touting at the Games. And what's caused further unrest is that the large number of the tickets they had in their position were in the name of the Olympic Council of Ireland. Now, this isn't good for the OCI. Uh, they uh, say that they're looking into this. Uh, Shane Ross, I think, has said that he's disappointed by this and and, and uh, has talked about uh, maybe moving on, as finding out the best we can. What more can be done than that, really, Timmy Dooley, to find out how these tickets got into the wrong hands? Well, first of all, you've identified the problem, the allegations that have been made. Uh, and while allegations like that are out there, uh, it is very damaging to Ireland's reputation, not just on the sporting uh, side of things, but it's damaging in terms of the image of Ireland, the work that the IDA do in attracting foreign investment here. It's damaging from a tourism point of view ah, in terms come, that it sullies come on. the reputation t- uh, In, of in the opinion of people in Ireland who are talking non-stop about this, how much traction has it gotten in other countries there where the IDA investment is coming oh, into Ireland? Sadly, it's the kind of thing that gets repeated and printed uh, in international media because it's a distraction away from the other activities that's going on within uh, the, the, the sports arenas. And the fact that the government hasn't initiated, or Shane Ross in particular as Minister of Responsibility for Sport, hasn't initiated an investigation further adds to the confusion. If the minister was serious about it and was serious about protecting Ireland's reputation, it's my view that he would have initiated an investigation. And that would say to the outside world, yeah, OK, there's an issue has arisen here, but we're prepared to get to the bottom of it because well, well, we recognise yeah, the but, but he's letting, he's letting the Olympic Council of Ireland, who own these tickets or who thought they owned these tickets, investigate first. There's no point in him wading in there with his size 11s trying to find out what's going on before the OCI has an idea. But hold on a second now. The, the OCI is, is an interested party in all of these. It's their tickets. So what we need is an independent investigation that will look into all the matters, that will call the OCI before it, will call the ticket sellers before it, will, the, the, the ticket sellers that have been accredited to do this job. So I don't think you can leave it to uh, the OCI to, to carry out the investigation. And I'm not making or casting any aspersions on the OCI, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interested party in all of these. 
and therefore certainly not the organisation that should be carrying out any investigation. So We're not talking about a handful of tickets here. Let's not forget now, this isn't like somebody getting a handful of tickets uh, and deciding to sell them at a profit. There's, there's upwards of a thousand tickets. So it must be somebody with very significant access to tickets uh, that has gotten them. Uh, we have, we understand the organisation or, or the company for whom the individuals concerned work for saying they have done nothing wrong uh, and they will defend them to the nth degree. But yes, we understand that this company has no contract with the OCI for the sale uh, yeah, no, 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 the, 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 there's no denying the question that's there. But it, it, to talk about an independent investigation, how do we go about doing that? Are we talking about appointing a senior counsel in Ireland to try and find out what happened in Brazil? Do we bring the OCI in before a specially convened sitting of the Public Accounts Committee because it's public money somewhere in, in the system? Like, How are we going to effectively deal well, with this? We're, we, we can't be the Brazilian police. Well, the Sports Council fund the OCI. The Department of Sport have a responsibility to ensure uh, that organisations attached to the OCI and the various different uh, federations of sport, they have a, they have a responsibility uh, to, 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 to interact with them. In my view, a senior official from the Department of Sport should already have been tasked by the Minister to carry out a preliminary examination of the facts that are there and if do you, do you honestly think that's not happening though that, 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 that inside the Department of Transport and Sport they're sitting on their hands I'm pretty sure they'll have asked these questions that you want asked already but then wouldn't the Minister explain that wouldn't he come out and say that he has tasked somebody with the responsibility to establish the facts and if there's a prima facie case for further investigation that he would say that the next phase of that pending the outcome of that initial examination would be to appoint a senior counsel to carry out a more thorough examination, uh, or if necessary, appoint uh, a high court judge or a retired judge mm. to carry out some kind of thing. Like, at the end of the day, the reputation of the country is being damaged. Uh, it's a distraction for all the people who who, who, who um, are involved in the sporting activity out there. Timmy Dooley, look, it's not a distraction for the Olympic athletes. I mean, this is an August story that's getting a lot of traction here because there's no other news. I'm not sure how much of a brouhaha there would be if this story had happened, uh, let's say, in March or April. There certainly would be questions answered and programmes like this would discuss it, but it's getting a lot more heat at the moment because there's not much else happening. Well, I think there'd be a brouhaha if there are Irish fans who are failing to gain access to the various events in Rio having travelled out because tickets uh, that were initially uh, earmarked for, for them um, have been diverted for the purpose of somebody profiteering. Okay. Now, that's an issue um, and I think that's one which, which needs to be addressed. Timmy Dooley, Fianna Fáil TD, thank you very much for joining us on The Right Hook. We'll talk about the actual sport next, will we?